Hi, and welcome to the Geriatric Lecture Series. My name is Ryan Carnahan. I'm going to be talking with you today about pharmacologic management of neuropsychiatric symptoms in dementia. I'm a psychiatric pharmacist and epidemiologist working at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I also work with the Geriatric Education Center. Uh, before we get started, I just want to disclose that I am supported for dementia education work by AHRQ and HRSA, and I receive other federal funds had no fi financial relationships uh, for quite some time with companies that produce any of these products. I also want to say that no drug is FDA approved to treat neuropsychiatric or behavioral disturbances in dementia, which is part of the challenge. And so I'm going to be talking with you today about a number of different uh, medications and, and evidence, uh, but recognizing that the FDA does not uh, approve of any of these um, as far as being shown to have been safe and effective in these conditions. Our objective today is to talk about medications that may help in the management of or otherwise influence neuropsychiatric symptoms of dementia. I'll actually be talking to you about some medications that can worsen cognition and cause delirium and other problems, uh, which we want to include in our differential diagnosis uh, when considering potential causes of um, neuropsychiatric disturbances. We want to determine whether an antipsychotic is appropriate for a person with dementia. Antipsychotics have been the primary drug treatment uh, used to manage neuropsychiatric disturbances, maybe with the exception of depression. Uh, and there are lots of reasons to try to prevent unnecessary use of an antipsychotic, but there are times when they can be helpful for people, or that appears to be the case. Um, so we're going to kind of talk about some criteria that you might think about in determining whether to use an antipsychotic or not. Then we'll talk about uh, how to select an antipsychotic for a per person with dementia based on efficacy, side effects, and the person's comorbidities. These drugs are different. They differ in their side effects. And so we want to, want to keep those things in mind um, when selecting an antipsychotic. And then how to monitor for antipsychotic side effects. For those of you familiar with the Improving Antipsychotic Appropriateness in Dementia Patients Project, uh, which is hosted on the Iowa Geriatric Education Center's website, so you can find on the website uh, main page, so a lot of the materials that I'll be talking about today are, are, are available there, and a lot of the content will be similar. I will be talking about some other drugs that we don't really address uh, in our online content. But uh, for more information and for the resources that I show you today, uh, you can go to that site. It takes a registration, but uh, everything up there is free. So again, the challenge that we have is that we don't really have a, a drugs that work to help manage behaviors or psychosis or other neuropsychiatric symptoms uh, in dementia. Uh, antipsychotics have been the main drug treatment. Uh, some 22% of nursing home residents get an antipsychotic, independent of whether they have uh, dementia. Uh, this varies... Uh, widely by state and facility. So when you see this type of variability in use of antipsychotics, it makes you think, well, some people are able to keep those rates low, and other people um, seem to be using a lot of them. So there's a lot of uncertainty in to how to uh, use these medications, and we want to help uh, try to reduce some of that uncertainty. The effectiveness of these drugs is modest um, in dementia, and they have serious side effects, including death, that we need to consider. Uh, Non-drug methods are, are preferred. It's unfortunate that with uh, turnover and other, and other issues, providers are not always well-trained to use non-drug behavior management techniques. 
Um, and you could say the same, you know, about families often struggle with managing these behaviors as well. And, and so we do want to provide some insights. Um, Marianne Smith's lecture from last month uh, really covers this in a lot more detail. I'll just touch on it uh, in sort of considering when to use an antipsychotic. So when we look at are the antipsychotics being used in nursing homes appropriate, some of the best evidence comes from this Office of Inspector General report um, from 2011 where they reviewed some 700 plus charts uh, to look at the appropriateness of antipsychotic use. They found that about 22% of antipsychotic prescriptions in nursing homes um, do not meet their, their standards for proper use. And so some of the common problems that we're seeing were people were getting too high of a dose they were getting these drugs for too long without an adequate indication, uh, without adequate monitoring, or a person was having side effects that suggest that the dose should be reduced or the drug discontinued, but they continued to get that drug anyway. So again, I mentioned that antipsychotics uh, are associated with mortality and dementia. There was a black box warning issued in 2004 stating that the elderly with dementia-related psychosis treated with these drugs um, were at an increased risk of death. Uh, this is generally consistent across all antipsychotics. Um, however, a lot of uh, observational studies have suggested that conventional antipsychotics, haloperidol specifically, seems to have a higher risk of being associated with mortality. Um, Ketiapine is actually appears to have a little bit lower risk, but as I'll show you later, the evidence for efficacy with that drug is very poor. It really um, has failed in multiple randomized controlled trials, making us think that, you know, despite its apparent safety um, in these observational settings, um, it's really the risk-benefit balance is not great because it doesn't seem to be effective. Um, so the relative risk of mortality um, in these studies has been about 1.6 to 1.7, uh, and that translates into an absolute risk of about 3.5% of people um, getting an antipsychotic have died during, the, during these studies compared to 2.3% uh, with placebo. If you translate that into a number needed to harm, or the number of people that need to receive a drug in order for one excess death to occur, that uh, comes out to about 83. The number needed to treat with these drugs has been estimated for that ranging from 5 to 14, depending on the drug or study. And so if you put those two numbers together, we determined that for about every 9 to 25 people who are helped by an antipsychotic, there is one excess death associated with use. So those aren't necessarily uh, great safety numbers. I think we do have to keep in mind that there is a quality of life that we need to consider. People with severe dementia care is in some ways palliative. You're trying to promote comfort, um, and if an antipsychotic can really make a person uh, more comfortable and actually have a better quality of life, um, then that's a good thing. Of course, if it just leads to over-sedation, uh, there's knocked out all the time, then, then that's not necessarily a good thing, uh, which leads us into these ad antipsychotic adverse effects. So some adverse effects that we need to look out for and consider prior to using these drugs include sedation uh, or sleepiness, tiredness, um, that kind of thing. Postural hypotension, where if somebody stands up, they get dizzy, they may fall uh, due to that postural hypotension. Um, extrapyramidal side effects or movement side effects um, are caused by these drugs. Parkinsonism is one example that is, uh, tends to be more common in older people. 
which is really just like it sounds. They, they start to look like they have Parkinson's disease, gait is shuffling, muscles get rigid, uh, and those types of problems. And so falls can really be a, a major issue um, with these and with many psychotropic drugs. Uh, cerebrovascular events or strokes have shown to be a, approximately the same increase in risk as uh, with increases in mortality of about 1% absolute risk increase. So 1% uh, more people have had strokes in trials uh, if they get an antipsychotic compared to placebo. And uh, observational studies have um, supported this relationship as well. Most of the mortality that's been seen uh, is infectious or cardiac. And so these are some of the most common reasons that people with uh, dementia die uh, with or without antipsychotics, but the, the risk seems to be a little bit higher with the drugs. Um, things to think about, Parkinsonism may cause swallowing difficulties, leading to aspiration pneumonia. All these drugs can affect cardiac conduction to some extent, and, and that may influence that risk. Um, and then there are metabolic side effects, uh, such as weight gain, worsening of diabetes, hyperlipidemia. Uh, you know, and, and sometimes in people with dementia, we actually want them to gain weight. They're not eating well and those types of things. And so um, that it may not always be a, a bad side effect. But all of these drugs have really caused acute diabetic ketoacidosis and, and other very uh, acute problems related to metabolic abnormalities. So we need to keep an eye on those, especially in people with pre-existing diabetes or cardiovascular issues. So when we think about problem behaviors or psychosis, or you could even say uh, depression, um, to really bring all neuropsychiatric uh, types of things together, anxiety, they're not just about the individual. So there are definitely individual factors uh, that will influence these symptoms, uh, but there are also things external to the person, uh, such as the environment, how are caregivers communicating with the person, um, what else could be stressing uh, the person in, in, a, in a given situation. Uh, drugs can also, again, as I mentioned, influence uh, problem behaviors or psychosis. And so we have to really consider all these different factors when we are evaluating these issues uh, to make sure that we're not just jumping to this, a drug and saying, well, they're having this symptom, we're going to treat it with a drug. And, you know, we, we really want to know what's going on with the person first um, before selecting a drug because drugs uh, all have side effects. And so we have provided in, in some of our uh, improving antipsychotic appropriateness in dementia patients' materials, um, some recommendations on how to uh, evaluate behaviors or psychiatric symptoms. This first page, you know, you can go to the IADAPT site or to some of the previous lectures in this series to, to get a, more of an overview of this, but this first page kind of walks through a step-by-step -step approach. The second uh, recommends some assessments to consider. Delirium is a, a very common issue uh, in people with dementia, they already have cognitive impairment, and so they're at risk of acute confusion if they develop a medical problem or have um, maybe get a drug that they are sensitive to, they can develop delirium. So uh, that's important to rule out, uh, again, before jumping to drug treatment as the answer. If we can treat the underlying causes of delirium, sometimes the other symptoms will go away. Although it is reasonable at times to prescribe an antipsychotic um, for symptomatic treatment of delirium on a short-term basis. Um, so trying to help maintain a person's comfort if they're having uh, symptoms that uh, might be helped by an antipsychotic. But then once the delirium resolves, uh, not just continuing that drug forever because they may not need it.
This list here uh, talks about drugs that may cause delirium or problem behaviors. Um, so on this list are a lot of psychiatric types of medications um, that can actually worsen issues, benzodiazepines, stimulants, uh, hypnotics, tricyclic antidepressants, anticonvulsants can cause uh, confusion if given at too high a dose. Pain medications um, can cause people to become confused. Drugs for Parkinson's disease uh, or restless leg syndrome, uh, some of these are dopamine agonists, and antipsychotics actually block dopamine. If you add dopamine to a person's system, um, to keep it simple, they, uh, they, they can induce psychotic types of symptoms. And so in a person with Parkinson's disease uh, or on one of these medications, if, they're, if they develop psychosis, uh, my first recommendation tends to be to decrease the dose of that. Um, anti-Parkinson's medication to see if some of that will resolve. Steroids can cause issues for people. Um, actually, some antibiotics or antivirals have been associated with, um, with confusion or psychiatric symptoms. Um, some cardiovascular medications such as digoxin. So the second side of this particular, uh, it's actually a pocket card, is um, anticholinergic drugs. Anticholinergic drugs have been shown to um, worsen uh, psychotic types of symptoms and other uh, cognitive um, functioning and other uh, symptoms in people with dementia. People with Alzheimer's disease already have problems with their cholinergic nervous system, and we actually use cholinesterase inhibitors, which en enhance acetylcholine neurotransmission to try to maintain cognition and function uh, in people with dementia. Um, so all of these drugs on the right side tend to work against those cholinesterase inhibitors. Uh, bladder antispasmodics are some that um, are, are particularly commonly used, as well as tricyclic antidepressants. Not all of the bladder antispasmodics necessarily get uh, into the brain as much as others, although there's been question as to whether uh, people with dementia have some blood-brain barrier dysfunction that would cause drugs that normally don't get into the brain uh, to get in there. So I don't necessarily consider any of them safe, although certain ones that don't cross over as much may be safer than others. Um, antihistamines, things in cough and cold medications, uh, can really cause a lot of problems for older people, um, as can some of these other uh, drugs that you see here. So I mentioned that non-pharmacologic management is really what we prefer for neuropsychiatric symptoms, uh, in part because the drugs um, have limited, limited effectiveness as well as side effects. Non-pharmacologic management or non-drug management, whatever you want to call it, uh, behavioral approaches uh, do require an individualized person-centered approach that recognizes that behaviors are expressions of unmet needs, uh, may be related to environmental factors, and other things. So a person, you know, despite dementia, still needs to have uh, quality in their life. They need to have activities that they enjoy, um, and uh, we need to recognize if they're having pain or other symptoms that may be uh, contributing to uh, what we're seeing as neuropsychiatric disturbances, uh, and, and try to manage these factors before uh, going to drugs. So again, as I mentioned, uh, Marianne Smith just talked about this last month. We also have resources uh, on this in our uh, Iowa ADAPT site. Um, and in the context of uh, considering drug therapy, 
I think it's important to think about what questions uh, you might ask before considering using an antipsychotic. And, and, and these come from uh, my friend Lisa Eulenkamp, who works on improving quality in nursing homes. And, and some of these are, uh, what exactly is the symptom or behavior? And so we really want to make sure that we're describing um, things very clearly. Um, what is the severity? How often is it happening? When is it happening? Under what, under what circumstances? These things can help us try to better understand why uh, the symptom or behavior is occurring. And then asking, what, what did you try to do to figure out why the person uh, was behaving in this way? So rather than reacting to a, a behavior or a symptom, uh, really trying to get at what are these underlying causes? What, are, uh, what could be contributing? Uh, to these problems. And then think about what is the person trying to communicate to us with this behavior? You know, if they're, if you're trying to, to dress them and then they you know, raise their arm and it, and it hurts and they kind of swat out, then, you know, is, is that because of, of some sort of pain? You know, what, what could be contributing to that problem? Um, and so again, getting at what is the reason for a person's behavior and then ultimately asking what did you try before um, considering medications? Um, some nursing facilities, uh, for example, are saying, you know, we're going to try at least th three different non-pharmacologic approaches to managing uh, a person's symptoms before we go ahead and try to, to use a drug. And I think that's a good strategy because not everything is going to work for everybody, um, but you might find something that can help improve those symptoms. In the severe cases, um, drugs may be necessary. So again, these are just a couple of our resources that may be helpful. Uh, to think about what can you do without drugs to help uh, manage some of um, the symptoms that people with dementia are experiencing. And those again are available on the Iowa ADAPT site. So now I'm going to get into the medication evidence and I'm going to talk about uh, a number of psychiatric medications, um, medications for dementia as well as um, pain medications and I, and I think the, the Evidence on pain medications is really starting to underscore that this is an underrecognized problem. Um, that if we manage that well, we can prevent the use of other psychotropic medications with, with different side effects. Um, and so, uh, this first study I want to talk about is a study of an empiric pain management protocol in nursing home residents with agitation. And uh, this study was done. When I'm saying empiric pain management proto protocol, they didn't necessarily know uh, that these people had pain. Um, they did some training to try to help people better recognize pain um, and then used uh, this management protocol that started with acetaminophen, um, also known as Tylenol, uh, and then went on to more substantial pain uh, medications, um, some opiates and then pregabalin uh, as the fourth step. Uh, but I think one of the things to point out here is that about two-thirds of the intervention group got just acetaminophen. When they saw that agitated symptoms improve at eight weeks with treatment versus usual care, and then worsened in the four-week four washout when they took away these drugs, and that two-thirds of the people were getting just acetaminophen or Tylenol, that to me really starts to push acetaminophen up to one of the first-line drug treatments for patients with agitation. We know that for most people, barring liver problems or, or something unusual, uh, acetaminophen is uh, relatively safe. You know, if you just use a scheduled dose, uh, maybe up to 3,000 milligrams a day, and you see an improvement, then you might be able to prevent the need for some of these 
um, other medications. And the importance of a scheduled dose um, also needs to be considered because if you just give acetaminophen when you know that somebody's in pain, then the problem of under-recognized pain is going to continue to be there. So scheduling it, just giving it three to four times a day um, so that it's already there to prevent a person's um, pain, I think, is the way to go. So then we get on to antidepressants. Um, there have been some studies that suggest that patients with agitated types of symptoms um, could benefit from uh, SSRIs. That's not necessarily been consistent across these studies. Um, citalopram has probably some of the better evidence. Um, but, it, but, you know, there, it seems like they could be somewhat effective. And they're actually the second phase of the uh, KDAD study, a uh, study of mostly antipsychotics in Alzheimer's disease patients funded by the NIH. Citalopram was one of the comparators, and um, this was uh, re reported at the American Association of Geriatric Psychiatry meeting last year. Uh, citalopram actually looked just about as good as the antipsychotics as far as its effectiveness. It also had some side effects. We do need to think about um, SSRIs not as benign drugs, but with um, drugs that have risks such as falls. There have been studies that have shown that there's a dose-dependent increase in fall risk. So as the dose goes up, the fall risk gets worse, but even at, at, at low doses, there seems to be a risk that's there. And there are reasons to believe that that association could be true. Um, so that there are these studies in, in patients with agitated symptoms. There are also placebo-controlled trials for depression. And most of these studies in people with dementia have been negative. They have not supported that SSRIs actually improve depression in people with dementia. Um, that's not true across the board. Uh, one of the earlier studies that um, used sertraline and used a one-week placebo run-in period where people, everybody got placebo, and if they improved on that, then uh, they were not uh, randomized to, to treatment. You know, that study had a little bit more of a trend uh, towards improvement. So uh, it could be that some of the uh, transients of um, depressive symptoms in people with dementia, where they may improve um, basically reacting to environmental changes or other factors over a short period of time, uh, could be explaining why some of the other studies that have brought people in and uh, looked at their depressive symptoms more in a, uh, at a cross-sectional kind of right-now way, um, haven't been able to show that the drugs are better than placebo, because both groups tend to improve quite a bit whether or not they get the drug. Um, but I think some of these things do tell us that we shouldn't necessarily just prescribe an antidepressant to every person with dementia who we think may have some depressive symptoms. Um, you want to, I think, reserve these for uh, more severe cases that are not responding well to non-drug types of approaches to um, improve a person's quality of life. And then be very careful about monitoring for side effects because we do know that they can cause problems. Other problems could be GI symptoms, headache, and, and um, things that are less severe than falls, but um, that side effects are, are an issue. Um, and many people with dementia do get antidepressants. Um, whether or not they're benefiting from them is a question. Other antidepressants uh, have been studied for, uh, for, trazodone has been studied for agitated types of symptoms. Some uh, providers really think that it's useful to give a small dose, for example, 25 milligrams of trazodone several times a day, somewhat probably for its sedative types of effects um, to help calm somebody. 
but it's not been very well studied, so it's hard to say whether it's safe, effective, uh, or what. Uh, you do have to look out for orthostatic hypotension and falls with trazodone, as with some of these other drugs. Uh, mirtazapine has been studied and was found to be similar to placebo or sugar pills for depression. Um, so again, another negative study in depression that's um, really telling us that these drugs are not working miracles for people with depressive symptoms, um, at least on average. Um, so overall, I'm not going to say, given that there's some evidence that they may help some patients with agitation, um, you know, and people without dementia, we think, you know, they work pretty decent uh, for depression and for anxiety. I'm not going to say that you should never use an antidepressant in a person with dementia, um, but we shouldn't just go ahead and give them without considering um, that there are side effects and that they may not work that well. So like anything, we want to monitor the effectiveness, monitor the side effects. Anticonvulsants uh, have been studied for, again, agitated types of behavioral symptoms uh, in people with dementia. Um, Divalproex or Depakote or you know, valproic acid is in the same uh, basic family. And there have been four studies uh, that have found that it's no better than placebo, and it's poorly tolerated. That can cause tremor, uh, over-sedation, other side effects. One study actually found that over a couple of years of getting Divalproex, uh, there was worse cognitive decline and hippocampal damage in the group who received Divalproex. So I think it was a couple of points on the mini mental status exam uh, that they declined further than uh, the group that got placebo. Um, and then this part of the brain, which is important to memory, the hippocampus, um, actually shrunk more in the group receiving Divalproex. So given all this accumulating evidence that says that this drug doesn't work, um, I think it's really not something that we should be using. It, it used to be used quite a bit. Some people still use it, but um, the studies are telling us that it doesn't seem to work. Carbamazepine is another anticonvulsant that's been studied. There's uh, been mixed evidence with this drug. Um, it is generally poorly tolerated and it has a whole lot of drug interactions because it induces certain uh, liver enzymes. Um, so for the most part, I don't recommend that people go and use carbamazepine. Um, you know, in some cases, specialists may, uh, may use it, but you'd want to know something about this drug before uh, giving it to, a, to anybody because um, lots of people don't tolerate it well. Other drugs to consider, um, or that have been used for behavioral symptoms in dementia include benzodiazepines, uh, other anxiolytics or sedatives. Um, there have been some studies, uh, very small studies with trial design problems that have found that these might work similarly to haloperidol. Uh, but, but most of these drugs worsen cognitive impairment. Uh, diphenhydramine is on the beers list. Uh, you know, we, uh, they're very clear that this is not safe for older people to receive. That's Benadryl is one brand name. It's in a lot of cough and cold types of products, uh, in a lot of over-the-counter sleep medications. And this can really cause somebody to become delirious, confused, and have other side effects. Benzodiazepines are sometimes used, but again, they cause cognitive impairment. The risk of falls associated with benzodiazepine happens for the duration of the action of the benzodiazepine. Uh, lorazepam, oxazepam, and temazepam are uh, drugs that are often preferred in older people because they 
don't go through um, the oxidative uh, metabolic pathway in the liver and so they don't accumulate as much in an older person um, whereas the long-acting benzodiazepines will accumulate in a person's fat and they'll um, have increased risk of sedation and sedation related side effects like falls um, over time um, so if one is to be used then I think you know lorazepam uh, or one of the other short-acting benzodiazepines would be preferred but using them on a scheduled basis is really just going to uh, expose somebody to side effect risks, um, expose them to potential dependence, uh, where if they stop getting it, then they experience withdrawal syndromes. And so they're really not recommended to be used on a scheduled basis. There are times that uh, if somebody is going to have an acute procedure, um, for example, and they have some very anxiety-provoking situation, um, that it may be good to, to give them a little bit of benzodiazepine. You need, do need to look out for, in addition to the sedation-related side effects, a disinhibition, where um, somebody actually gets, um, you know, they have worse behaviors when they get a benzodiazepine. And, and if you think about it, uh, these, these really are, are similar in some ways pharmacologically to alcohol. So if you think about somebody who gets kind of drunk and then does some things that they uh, wouldn't normally do, then it's uh, really it's really similar to uh, somebody being disinhibited by a benzodiazepine. So bottom line, uh, for the most part, these drugs are not things to be using. Uh, they certainly shouldn't replace other more evidence-based treatments in managing behavioral issues, but there may be times um, when for acute anxiety-provoking situations that a benzodiazepine could be appropriate. Cognitive enhancing drugs, particularly cholinesterase inhibitors, um, have shown that they have got some small benefits in neuropsychiatric symptoms um, in, in when they've been given um, to try to improve cognition and function in people with dementia. So when they look at this, uh, the overall neuropsychiatric symptoms scale, um, they see that there is a small but significant uh, improvement in the group on cognitive enhancers compared to placebo groups. When they've been studied to, uh, given to somebody who has behavioral symptoms, um, so in thinking of them more as a treatment for those, um, they really haven't been shown to work. So it's, it's not something that we would consider. We also want to think about some of the side effects of these drugs as being possibly um, contributing to behavioral symptoms in, in some people. For example, uh, GI disturbances. So somebody's stomach hurts because they're taking these drugs, and which can, they can cause uh, increased GI motility and overall um, some, some stomach discomfort. Uh, that may actually uh, worsen some problems for them. So, you know, there are people who think that cognitive enhancers are the should be the standard treatment for anybody with dementia, and we should try to maintain function with these drugs as much as possible, despite their small uh, benefits. And there are those that think that they really don't help that much, and that, um, you know, we should probably discontinue them, certainly, as a person's dementia uh, gets more severe. Um, and I don't think there's a, a necessarily a clear right or wrong answer on that. You want to think about, you know, individuals and whether they appear to be potentially benefiting from this drug or whether they're having side effects that are making their quality of life worse. Other drugs have been studied uh, for behavioral issues, including transdermal estrogen in men. Um, this study did not show benefits. And then propranolol, a beta blocker, uh, typically, you know, used for hypertension or um, other cardiovascular indications, 
has been shown to have some benefit. It, it gets into the brain more than other beta blockers because it's highly lipophilic or fat-loving, so it, it gets into the brain better than others. It can uh, help calm people down in some ways. You also have to think about that um, if you're slowing a heart rate, you can have orthostatic hypotension um, and other side effects of uh, antihypertensives, to, uh, low blood pressure, dizziness, and those types of things. So um, not a lot of great evidence, uh, but just that one small trial. So um, not usually a drug that people go to um, as a first-line treatment. So then we get to antipsychotics, again, which are really the most commonly used drugs for behavioral and, and psychotic types of symptoms in dementia. There is evidence that supports modest symptom improvements with um, some antipsychotics. Uh, this really comes from a, um, an AHRQ-funded comparative effectiveness research review on the effectiveness of antipsychotics for off-label conditions, uh, as well as from a Cochrane uh, evidence-based review, uh, which looks, looked at haloperidol um, for behavioral and psychiatric symptoms in dementia. Um, and so we have haloperidol, olanzapine, ketiapine, risperidone, and, and aripiprazole is kind of our place to start as far as drugs that have some evidence. Uh, as I mentioned before, ketiapine or Seroquel has less supportive evidence. There are actually four negative randomized controlled trials um, showing that it doesn't work. Um, and then some of these drugs are available now as generics. Um, haloperidol has been generic for a long time, and risperidone and olanzapine have been available as generics more recently. So when we summarize the evidence uh, from the trials of antipsychotics for behavioral issues, um, we see modest efficacy. So they don't help, you know, there, there's not this huge dramatic um, helpfulness for people compared to placebo, but there are, are significant trends um, towards improvement in some symptoms. Risperidone has been found to be helpful for psychosis. Uh, aripiprazole and risperidone have been found to be helpful for neuropsychiatric symptoms. Interestingly, the benefits seem to be greater in those without psychosis, despite these being antipsychotic drugs, those in nursing homes, and those with more severe cognitive impairment. So it's kind of like the worse uh, off somebody is, the more that it seems like these drugs um, could be potentially helpful uh, for these symptoms. Haloperidol's efficacy is, is overall, as best as we can tell, similar to atypical antipsychotics. Um, and we'll talk about side effects. It certainly can cause a lot more extrapyramidal side effects, such as Parkinsonism, than these others. But at low doses, some patients tolerate it okay. And it's uh, really been a standard of care for delirium uh, for a long time. Again, we have four negative placebo-controlled trials with ketiapine, so it's very difficult to recommend this drug. So I mentioned the KDAD study, um, this NIH-funded study to compare different antipsychotics um, to placebo um, or, and also citalopram in the second phase, but we're talking about the first phase uh, results here. Um, and what they found was that time to all-cause discontinuation uh, was no different between these drugs or placebo. So whether or not they got a drug or placebo, they discontinued the drug uh, or, or whatever they were getting at the same rate. Uh, the time to discontinuation due to lack of efficacy actually favored olanzapine and risperidone. Uh, so those that were able to tolerate the, those drugs did seem to have more efficacy uh, perhaps than with ketiapine or placebo. 
time to discontinuation due to adverse effects favored placebo. So, of course, if people got the drugs, they were more likely um, to discontinue due to the adverse effects caused by those drugs. But overall, the conclusion was, well, these drugs may um, have some benefits in some cases for some people, um, but the side effects seem to um, balance out the, the benefits so that ultimately time to discontinuation is similar. Going back to that AHRQ summary of efficacy uh, for atypical antipsychotics, um, this table summarizes their conclusions. So overall, risperidone seemed to win out as having the most evidence and the most consistent evidence suggesting that it, it can help um, for neuropsychiatric types of symptoms, behaviors, or psychosis. Erpiprazole came in, I guess, second, um, in my view, uh, where uh, there's a couple of positive trials that seem to show that, um, that it may be helpful. It doesn't have as much evidence uh, as risperidone so far. Um, lanzapine, I think, would uh, probably say, you know, I'd say that would come in uh, third here. There seems to be good evidence that it can help with agitation and dementia. However, I got this plus minus or mixed results for psychosis. And part of that was because the uh, rate of reporting of psychosis as an adverse event in the placebo-controlled trials of olanzapine uh, was higher than with olanzapine than with placebo. So when we'll talk about the pharmacology of these drugs briefly in a minute, but uh, olanzapine and catiapine uh, have anticholinergic properties. Um, and we mentioned before that uh, anticholinergic properties um, can actually worsen psychosis, worsen cognition in people with dementia. Um, so whether or not that could be part of the explanation for why these drugs don't do as well as the others isn't very clear, but when we see that signal for an increased risk of um, psychosis in uh, people with olanzapine, uh, it certainly raises some concern. With catiapine, again, for the most part, these studies have been negative. There was one secondary analysis of one trial that showed um, that it may be beneficial at 200 milligrams per day. Um, that's a much higher dose than has been given in, in some of the other studies. And actually, um, the uh, it's higher than the, the dose, the maximum dose that CMS allows for um, chronic use in nursing homes. So they, that maxes out at 150 milligrams. So we, you know, they have this trend towards potential benefit at 200 milligrams of catiapine um, in one study in a secondary analysis. That's not very strong evidence. Uh, in my opinion. Lots of people are getting this at much lower doses, 25 milligrams, 50 milligrams a day, um, and those low doses may explain why we don't see the same level of side effects as, such as mortality uh, in some of the observational studies, but I really have doubts um, based on the randomized controlled trials whether the drug is actually helping people. So then um, if we are going to think about using one of these drugs, we want to think about what is a potentially appropriate treatment target. Um, so CMS has described these as being hallucinations, um, so seeing something that's not there, hearing something that's not there, uh, any sort of sensory perception that is um, uh, not based on an actual stimulus, uh, delusions where people have a fixed false belief um, for example, they think someone's stealing something, they think their spouse is cheating on them, um, despite really no evidence to suggest that that would be true. Um, 
a lot of times people's memory problems can be mistaken for delusions. So just because they're not anchored in our current reality um, of others is not necessarily a problem. It's not necessarily a delusion uh, that we want to treat. It's just that um, as people's dementia gets more severe, it's difficult for them to, to remember things or to even be oriented to the year, decade, and so on. Um, and then aggressive behavior. And this, of course, is one of the most problematic symptoms uh, if people are striking out, kicking, biting, hitting, um, then th th that can really trigger antipsychotic use in a lot of cases. But these symptoms are really only appropriate to trigger antipsychotic use um, if they present a danger to the patient or others, or if they cause the patient to experience inconsolable or persistent distress, a significant, significant decline in function, or substantial difficulty receiving needed care. So again, we're thinking about what, how much are these symptoms impacting a person's quality of life? Uh, and I like to say it's okay for somebody with dementia to be pleasantly psychotic. If it's not disturbing to them, then uh, there's no reason necessarily to try to orient them into our uh, reality. But when it really starts to cause a lot of suffering for the person, if we think that a drug um, could help relieve some of that suffering, uh, or if you know people are really if their people's safety is really compromised due to some of the aggressive types of behaviors, uh, then a drug may be uh, appropriate to use. CMS has listed a number of inappropriate antipsychotic treatment targets: um, wandering, for example, unsociability, poor self-care, verbal expressions or behaviors that do not present a danger to the resident or others. So just yelling, um, that kind of thing is not usually considered an appropriate uh, treatment target, um, and you can read the rest of this list um, here. So if we're going to use an antipsychotic, and the same would go for any drug, uh, we want to clearly document the treatment targets, and it would be as objective as we can uh, in thinking about what is the frequency that this is occurring, what is the severity of the symptom, um, when's it happening? Is it, can we tell based upon uh, the patterns of, of occurrence uh, what might be causing it? Um, but still, just try to try to be very clear about what's going on so that when we um, give a drug, and then we can monitor afterwards and see whether it's actually improved those behaviors. Some people will chart behaviors over time, and then if you don't see that things have changed after the drug, then we should take the drug away. Um, if there's no evidence that it's helping, then it's probably just putting a person at risk of side effects. We want to be very specific again. Agitation, I've used that term a number of times in this lecture, but it really doesn't mean anything. Biting means something. Kicking means something, and, and so on. So uh, we want to be descriptive about those um, behaviors or whatever symptoms are causing us to use a drug. And then to continue documentation over time and evaluate whether the drug is helping. So if an antipsychotic is thought to be necessary, um, one of the first things you want to think about is what type of dementia does the person have. If they've got Parkinson's disease, Lewy body dementia, or frontotemporal dementia, then treatments are, are, the evidence that we have really isn't going to apply to them well. Um, most of the evidence is really focused on people with Alzheimer's disease, perhaps people um, with vascular or mixed dementia. Um, as well. And then some of the other more rare types of dementia, it's really hard um, to think about how evidence fits with them because 
we just don't have good evidence. So in Parkinson's disease or Lewy body dementia, these are actually very overlapping disorders where you see a lot of movement types of symptoms and, and may see hallucinations um, or other uh, fluctuations in uh, cognitive capacity. Uh, they really tolerate antipsychotics poorly. Antipsychotics cause those extrapyramidal movement side effects, and those, again, Parkinsonism is one of them. So they're going to worsen a person's Parkinsonian symptoms. Um, so again, my first recommendation is typically to reduce the dopamine agonist dose, uh, those drugs that are treating Parkinson's disease, which can cause psychosis, um, if that's reasonable to do, prior to considering adding an antipsychotic. Cholinesterase inhibitors um, appear to potentially reduce hallucinations, you know, in people with uh, Lewy body dementia, but uh, they can also cause syncope and falls. So you have to be very careful about using them. I know some people who have tried them and have decided not to because of this risk. Um, but the, the trials, um, particularly rivastigmine, um, has shown to be potentially beneficial uh, for some of these symptoms. Uh, memantine um, appears to produce possibly global improvements um, as far as what exactly is improving in the studies of memantine. Um, it's hard to tell. Some people have proposed that it may be improving sleep quality, um, but it, it's a drug to consider uh, in people with Parkinson's disease or Lewy body dementia. Um, if you get on to the antipsychotics, um, I'll mention in a few minutes, but um, Cataiapine and clozapine really are less likely to cause the extrapyramidal side effects uh, compared to the other antipsychotics, and they're the preferred drugs in Parkinson's disease and Lewy body dementia, despite still not that great of evidence that, that they might be helpful. Um, frontotemporal dementia, of course, people have a lot of behavioral symptoms. They're very disinhibited, and, and this is a real problem. We don't really have a lot of good evidence to say what does or doesn't work in frontotemporal dementia. My concern is, is if the part of the brain that uh, controls inhibitions is really just not functioning anymore, that you know, giving a drug is not necessarily going to uh, be able to impact that as much as we'd want it to. But there is um, some evidence that trazodone and stimulants could possibly um, be helpful for some people. If you want more details on this, I've uh, listed a couple of references here. Uh, the Weintraub and, and Herdig paper is particularly good. Also on our Improving Antipsychotic Appropriateness in Dementia Patients site, there is an evidence-based review called Antipsychotic Use in Dementia, um, which is written, and it uh, provides uh, more details on these studies. Um, there is some mixed data for paroxetine, an SSRI antidepressant, uh, at a higher dose of 40 milligrams uh, per day. It appeared to worsen cognition and possibly behaviors, um, and at the lower dose, it was a, a little bit more positive at 20 milligrams. So uh, again, you can um, look further at those um, studies if you want more details on that. I won't cover them too much in the interest of time. When we're uh, looking at antipsychotics and trying to select them, we want to, again, keep in mind that these drugs are not um, all just antipsychotics that work all the same. They've got differences in their pharmacology, uh, which will um, affect our choice depending on what comorbidities a person might have. So I mentioned that metabolic side effects can be a problem uh, with antipsychotics, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and weight gain. Olanzapine tends to be the worst among the antipsychotics that we're talking about um, at causing some of these problems. Clozapine would also be 
uh, one of the worst, but we're not really talking about that as much today. Uh, Cateopine also causes some problems, um, but uh, olanzapine is, is the worst among the five that, that we're discussing. In Parkinson's disease, haloperidol would be among the worst, um, but most antipsychotics really um, can worsen the Parkinsonian symptoms. Um, Cateopine at very low doses um, is something that some people use and, and seems to be potentially helpful. Um, evidence, again, really isn't there um, to tell us that it works, but um, we don't have a lot of treatment options after lowering the dose of, of a dopamine agonist that might be causing um, some of the psychotic symptoms. And then clozapine can be considered. Um, this requires blood draws and, uh, to check white blood cell counts frequently. So, um, uh, you know, it's a difficult drug to use um, and um, not necessarily a first option for most people. Regardless of what antipsychotic um, is selected, it's important to start with a very low dose. You don't necessarily want to just push up the dose very quickly and expect that um, somebody's going to respond immediately. Um, these drugs take time to get to steady state, to get up to the level um, at which they're going to be at a particular dose, uh, after, you know, accumulating in somebody's body. Um, so just pushing to a high dose immediately, it's going to be difficult to know what dose they actually need. This chart illustrates some of the differences in uh, receptor binding of the different antipsychotics. Um, so D2 dopamine receptors are those that are thought really to explain most of the antipsychotic effects of most of these drugs. Um, they also cause extrapyramidal side effects. Um, you can see that cateopine uh, binds these, uh, this receptor a lot less potently uh, than some of the others, but haloperidol um, is one of the most potent binders. And then we have some others here, but ultimately we've translated um, this information into this chart, which is color-coded um, in a pocket guide that we've produced for our iADAPT uh, project. Um, but it really compares what is the risk of these different side effects um, relative to other agents. Um, you can see haloperidol causes the worst movement side effects. So if somebody's got Parkinson's disease, that of course explains why um, it would be the worst choice for them. Um, cateopine causes a lot of sedation, followed by olanzapine. Um, olanzapine seems to potentially uh, cause some confusion, possibly related to those anticholinergic effects. Um, it's the worst as far as increasing triglycerides. All of these drugs actually have a signal for uh, worsening urinary symptoms. Um, so if you give the drug and it, it starts to cause some incontinence for somebody, um, just be aware that um, that may be a side effect. So this pocket guide, again, available on our iADAPT site, is, um, walks through a lot of this information that I've talked about, um, compares these different adverse effects of the different antipsychotics, um, talks about what is the appropriate dosing of these drugs, uh, again, based on CMS standards, what are the different dosage forms um, that are available. I've heard uh, about some people using topical antipsychotics, uh, like a Seroquel gel, there's no evidence that I could find that, that actually talks about whether that's absorbed into a person's body. Um, haloperidol gel um, has been found not to be absorbed well. Um, and, and I get very concerned when we're giving a very powerful drug with a lot of potential side effects about giving uh, it topically where we don't know 
if the absorption is, is, is there or not, and it's very unpredictable. A person with thinner skin, for example, maybe they will absorb it. And, and so I would caution people against that route. Um, IM antipsychotics uh, may be important in emergency situations, um, so in real severe crises, um, but overall the, the oral antipsychotics are uh, going to be preferred for most people. You can crush these tablets and give them with applesauce or something else, uh, or some have liquid forms they can use as well. So in thinking about monitoring antipsychotic use, we want to ideally start with a time-limited trial. And the reason for that is so that we can make sure that we're going back and saying, is this working for the person or not? And are they having side effects? So giving that initial prescription on a shorter-term basis um, helps us make sure that we're checking back in uh, as to whether the person really needs it or not. Uh, we need to monitor for effectiveness and, of course, monitor for adverse effects. So you've seen some of these lists of potential adverse effects. Um, this is a second pocket guide, which is really focused more uh, at uh, care providers. Um, this monitoring for side effects section on the right um, uses more plain language than the other prescribing guide. But um, these guides really talk about what is some of the what what are the frequency with which we might monitor some of these adverse effects, and how would we do that? So again, we only want to continue drug treatment if there's clear evidence of efficacy. There have been studies of withdrawing antipsychotics from people um, in nursing homes who have been getting them for a while, where it wasn't necessarily clear if they still needed them or not, um, that actually shows that people don't get worse, and sometimes they get better. They'll have less depressive symptoms, they'll um, be less sedated, they may start communicating again. Um, you know, some people will really benefit from having a drug taken away because it was really um, sedating them too much and making it difficult for them to have any quality to their life. Um, however, some people will need continued antipsychotic treatment or they will benefit from that. Um, this is a randomized controlled trial of discontinuation of antipsychotics in 110 risperidone responders after 16 or 32 weeks of treatment, uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine last year. Um, so some things to note I thought that were highlights from this trial. Uh, it was mostly in outpatient or assisted living patients. Um, so in thinking about who this generalizes to, uh, it's mostly those patients. But 112 out of 180 responded in the first 16 weeks. So right off the bat we have, you know, about 60% of people um, appeared to respond to the drug. Um, and that was, you know, some of that could be... Uh, natural improvement and some could be drug related. But, uh, you know, some 40% or so of people uh, did not respond to the drug. So it tells us that some people are not benefiting and they should, the drug should be taken away because it's just placing them at risk. But as they discontinued uh, risperidone in people, there was a higher relapse rate uh, in the placebo group compared to the continued risperidone group. Not everybody relapsed. Some people did fine coming off of the drug, even though they responded uh, to it initially, or improved while taking it, I should say. Um, but the, the relapse rate was higher in the placebo group. So the bottom line here is that some people seem uh, to benefit from longer-term treatment. Um, some people are going to need that. Others, um, you know, the drug can be taken away. Behaviors are not necessarily a fixed problem in dementia. Um, all these symptoms can fluctuate over time as somebody's dementia changes, and, 
and uh, we need to keep that in mind rather than just continuing treatments indefinitely. So periodic gradual dose reductions uh, I think are important. They're based on solid evidence um, at least twice yearly as the regulation. I've heard other experts say that after three months of initial treatment it's uh, not a bad idea to consider trying to drop that dose down a little bit and seeing what happens. You don't have to necessarily be in a big rush um, to drop the dose if it's not related to a side effect that a person's experiencing uh, because we do want to see what happens as the drug gets down to steady state and how um, you know whether the person's behaviors come back you know just taking the drug away um, immediately can sometimes lead to crises and hospitalization and things that we really don't want to see if drugs are used in delirium then uh, discontinuing or tapering after resolution of delirium I think is good practice you don't need to leave drugs on board that are uh, treating something that's not there anymore a general guideline that I, I think is reasonable to give people is a, a 25 percent decrease in dose of antipsychotics every four to six weeks uh, you know, if, we're, if they're not experiencing side effects, we're not in, in a big hurry to take the drug away. Uh, cutting it down relatively slowly allows the drug to um, to get reach a new steady state and to find out if it's helping or not. Um, some drugs have longer half-lives, aripiprazole, for example, and so um, you could argue for a longer taper, but uh, I think this is a, a, a decent rule of thumb to go by. So I'm thinking about getting rid of some of the unnecessary antipsychotics that we know um, are out there. Um, some of the recommendations that have been given are uh, that we should not be using PRN or as-needed antipsychotic medications. These are seen as a crutch where we just go to those immediately if somebody's um, having a symptom and we don't try to think about why they're having the symptom. Uh, look at discontinuation or gradual dose reduction in people on medications for greater than three months as we've sort of talked about, and then evaluate the need for antipsychotics being started. Um, and again, this is really focused on, on the nursing home environment, um, on residents during the evening or night shift or over the weekend. Um, so if the problems are really only happening when, when a facility is understaffed, then that suggests that it may be um, a staffing-related issue as opposed to uh, a true need for that antipsychotic. So again, I just wanted to make people aware of the um, IADAPT, uh, Improving Antipsychotic Appropriateness in Dementia Patients Training and Resource website. Um, a lot of our GLS lectures this year are following along uh, with this website, but we have um, these laminated pocket guides, uh, which I've reviewed some of the, the resources with you today, um, available for $10 a set plus shipping, which is our cost, or actually a little bit less than our cost. Uh, these are free to Iowa, Iowa providers through um, our grant support. Uh, there's PDF copies of all these things available for free, as well as the evidence-based reviews that talk about some of these issues in more detail, provide references, and so on. Um, there's a shared decision-making guide on antipsychotic use, um, which is meant to help facilitate conversations with families or patients about um, whether an antipsychotic um, is the right choice given the side effect risks, but the potential benefits for some people. And we have uh, free CE and, and CME um, through that site as well. So thank you uh, for joining us for the geriatric lecture series this month. Um, just to summarize, uh, we need to keep in mind that quality person-centered caregiving approaches may reduce the need for some uh, medications to treat neuropsychiatric symptoms uh, because those non-drug approaches may be helpful 
Um, I want to make sure that we're ruling out potentially modifiable causes of symptoms, um, such as pain, environmental causes, and others, um, prior to using a drug to treat the symptom. When medications are used, we need to uh, document their justification and monitor effects um, and make sure that a person is not experiencing side effects um, that are worse than uh, the potential help that they're having. Remember that antipsychotics are not all the same. Uh, they differ in their effectiveness and side effects and that they're not always forever. So some people do not need to be continuously given these potentially harmful drugs. Um, you know, if it's benefiting them, if we have clear evidence that their quality of life is improved because of a drug, then okay. Um, but if not, it's important to try to discontinue the drug and, and um, take it away if it's not helping them. So thanks uh, again, and uh, appreciate your attention, and I hope you join us again next time. Thanks.